Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, here's some news. You can now listen to our show and its four seasons worth of archives ad-free on Amazon Music. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. This mast of iron gymnasium apparatus is incomplete, confused, and deformed. Poet Francois Coppet. Dijon, France is a city located about 315 kilometers southeast of Paris. Today, when one thinks of Dijon, they likely think sweet and savory thoughts. It's a city known for its mustard, vinegar, charcuterie, chocolate, gingerbread, and liqueurs. And thanks to its location nestled in the country's Burgundy region, it also boasts a mean Pinot Noir. But centuries ago... Dijon's appeal resided a little north of the stomach. Back in the late 18th century, it became known as an intellectual center of France, a hub to many musicians, artists, and architects. And in 1832, two Dijon residents, a Parisian-French army man named Alexandre Eiffel and the heiress to a timber business, Catherine Meneuse, gave birth to their first child, 
they'd call him Gustav. Gustav Eiffel. Gustav Eiffel recalls his childhood as a warm one. He was close with his father and even closer to his mother. And soon his parents brought home two little sisters for him to play with. Eiffel wasn't the most studious of students. As biographer David I. Harvey wrote in his book, Eiffel, the genius who reinvented himself, Eiffel was an undistinguished pupil for most of his school years. He couldn't stand the smell of a classroom, the tedium of a lesson. Come his final year before college, Eiffel prepared for his entrance exams into the École Polytechnique, a prestigious school that specialized in science and engineering. But he failed those exams, and his grades weren't strong enough to otherwise sway the admissions officers. Rejected, he watched his classmates attend the distinguished institution. Instead, he would attend the College of Art and Manufacturing in Paris. It was thought of as the more vocational, more liberal choice. There he would study engineering, but there he would struggle. Eiffel chose to major in chemistry. After college, he'd head back to Dijon and work at his uncle's vinegar plant. Though his college had a rule that all students must dip their toes into all areas of study. So the budding chemist was forced to enroll in classes like textiles, civil engineering, mechanics, and metallurgy. Eiffel received a 17% grade in technical drawing. As the story is told in Eiffel's biography, the shy college student was, at his core, more practical than academic, and he was falling behind on more than just his grades. Eiffel was late on his rent, a few months running, owing his Paris landlord nearly 800 francs. He needed money. Toot sweet. 1850s France was an interesting time. President Napoleon III became Napoleon III Emperor of the French, and he was determined to revitalize his capital city. Cutting-edge infrastructure, modern agriculture, and the positioning of France as a great power were high on his list. So, in 1855, Paris unveiled the Exposition Universelle, a world's fair to showcase France's farming, industrial, and fine arts prowess. Four years prior, London had held the first modern world's fair to great success, and Napoleon III, true to form, decided Paris's exhibition would be bigger, better, and more expensive. It would also serve as a milestone, 40 years of peace since the Battle of Waterloo. So Gustave Eiffel wrote to his mother, asking if she could buy him a ticket. A wide-eyed Eiffel toured the freshly built Palace of Industry's 21,000 exhibits. The impressive one-building showroom situated right on the Champs-Élysées canopied its 5 million visitors with glass and iron. That summer, he mustered up the grades to earn his college diploma. 
and the innovation at the exposition inspired Eiffel to kick off the job hunt. As it turned out, Eiffel's vinegar dreams had a shelf life. Suddenly, he felt inclined to take a look at metallurgy. Conveniently, Eiffel had a relative in that industry, too. His brother-in-law owned an iron foundry and offered the new grad an apprenticeship. At the foundry, Eiffel largely observed, absorbing both the technical and business sides of iron. For a while. But being an apprentice, the gig was unpaid, and those 800 francs still weighed heavy on his mind. So Eiffel decided to take his newfound iron knowledge and apply to jobs in a field where iron was king. The railway. At that point in time, rail transportation was booming. Since the Industrial Revolution, the ability to transport goods at high speeds totally changed the city of Paris. People who'd spent their entire lives in rural France were now flocking to the capital city, and trains full of food, coal, and lumber were making tracks right behind them. With new rail lines being added constantly, there were countless jobs for young, metallurgically inclined grads. And new railways meant one thing. New bridges. Historically, the metal of choice for bridges was wood or stone. But by the mid-19th century, it was all about iron. Though as biographer David I. Harvey explains, iron wasn't just a more durable replacement for wood and stone. It was a whole other beast, requiring new designs, new methods, new expertise. Eiffel landed a job at a railway company. He worked closely with the chief engineer and even had a hand in building a sheet iron bridge. Then Eiffel was given the reins to design his first bridge. And with that, the company threw their hard hats in the ring for a big project. A 1,600-foot bridge that would cross the Garonne River at Bordeaux. And they landed the project. Eiffel didn't design the bridge. But at 25 years old, he was entrusted with its execution. It would be a risky and challenging project. The river underneath was tumultuous. But Eiffel completed the job with laser-like precision. And soon, he was named chief engineer at his company. Over the next two decades, Eiffel built bridges all over France. It wasn't until he turned 48 that he decided to venture out on his own for the first time. He'd start his own construction engineering company in Paris. And it wouldn't be long before Eiffel secured his new company a series of major contracts across not just France, but the world. Eiffel built the Pest train station in Hungary, the Maria Pia Bridge in Portugal. Then, in 1878, Eiffel joined forces with French architect Charles Garnier to build the Nice Astronomical Observatory. Garnier was known for his design of the Paris Opera House a decade prior, which would later be dubbed the Palais Garnier. The Palais would become the most famous opera house in the world, and the setting for The Phantom of the Opera. 
Together, Garnier and Eiffel divided and conquered on the observatory with the objective of building, quote, not only a scientific marvel, but an artistic one. Garnier would build the Palladian base. He entrusted Eiffel with the 79-foot dome that would cover it. It would be the largest unsupported dome in the world. Plus, it had to rotate. The dome would be made of 620 sections of sheet iron. And here's the kicker. It would float in water to allow it to move so effortlessly, even a child could rotate the dome fully in just four minutes. In the mid-1860s, the French gifted a symbol to America in the form of a copper statue. The statue would honor the alliance between the two nations during the American Revolution and celebrate the abolishment of slavery in the United States. The statue would be called Liberty Enlightening the World. But after construction began in 1879, the architect commissioned to design the statue passed away unexpectedly leaving the prestigious and mammoth undertaking without a metal expert to marshal its builders. So the torch was passed to a Frenchman with extensive experience in metal, one Gustave Eiffel. Eiffel designed the complex, flexible, 120-ton iron support skeleton inside the 80-ton copper statue. The statue's name would later be shortened, to the Statue of Liberty. Eiffel's iron skeleton has kept Lady Liberty standing to this day, nearly 150 years down the line. And with that accomplishment, Eiffel was given a nickname, Le Magicien du Fer, or the Magician of Iron. In the mid-1880s, one of Eiffel's engineers, Maurice Coquelin, sketched a design for a tower, a lattice tower. It was based on the Ladding Observatory, an iron-braced wooden tower with a square base and three levels built for the 1853 World's Fair in New York. Eiffel took a look, but he rejected the design, feeling strongly that it was too minimalist. As David I. Harvey writes, Eiffel sent Coquelin back to the drawing board to add a little more oomph. What Coquelin came back with was a tall, pointed lattice tower shaped almost like a capital A. It was modern. It was pseudo-Gothic. It had no purpose except to inspire awe. Eiffel approved the final sketches and started shopping his company's design around. Turns out, the city of Barcelona was also shopping around for ideas for a landmark in its city center. So, Eiffel decided to pitch his company's latest plans. But Barcelona rejected Eiffel's tower. Reportedly, they were worried it would be a, quote, unwieldy eyesore. In 1886, Paris announced it would be hosting another Exposition Universelle, 
this time to celebrate the 100th year since the beginning of the French Revolution. Once again, the world's brightest and most innovative would flock to Paris to showcase the industrial, scientific, technological, and cultural achievements of their respective countries. But this time, France wanted to do something big, something so significant it would both honor the centennial and blow all other countries out of the water. They wanted to build a flagship structure right at the Champ de Mouse beside the River Seine. It was a tall order. The fair would take place in 1889. The French national government had three years to find an architect and complete construction. So they held an open design competition for an edifice that could stand right at the center of the event. Eiffel submitted Coquelin's design with a few tweaks. The tower would be made of 18,000 wrought iron components, weighing about 7,000 tons, held together by two and a half million rivets. Four massive curved iron piers connected by a lattice of girders would taper together to form one imposing summit, reaching 300 meters or 1,000 feet tall. Let's pull over there for a second. In 1886, the tallest landmark in the world was the Washington Monument, which stood 169 meters or 555 feet tall. Eiffel's Tower would nearly double that height. Total proposed cost? A cool 6.5 million francs, or nearly 80 million US dollars in today's figures. Seven hundred hopefuls submitted their designs. That seven hundred was narrowed down to one hundred, and a committee was established to choose a winner. And perhaps it was the sheer ambition of Eiffel's tower. Perhaps it was Eiffel's hand in the Statue of Liberty. But on June 12, 1886, the committee announced the following. The tower to be built for the 1889 Exposition Universelle should clearly have a distinctive character and should be an original masterpiece of work. And only Eiffel's tower seemed to satisfy those requirements fully. There was just one problem. The committee would provide only 1.5 million francs for the project. So Eiffel was forced to look elsewhere for the remaining 5 million. So he found some backers and convinced a consortium of banks to loan him the money at considerable personal risk. Both the Paris government and the French national government predicted Eiffel would build his tower at a crushing financial loss. But in his contract, Eiffel ensured he be granted the rights to his tower and the land it would sit on for 20 years. Those rights included any ticket fees, revenue from gift shops or restaurants, and the rights to all photographs of the tower itself. Then come 1909, the city of Paris would regain the rights to the land and to the tower itself and tear it down. 
Soon, the plans for the tower were published for the public to see, and Eiffel filled with pride, proclaiming, when it is finished, they will love it. But that would be the engineer's first major miscalculation. When the plans for the Tour Eiffel, or as we North Americans call it, the Eiffel Tower, reached the Parisian public, those associated with the exhibition expressed concern at the 20-year demolition date. There would surely be more exhibitions over the next two decades. Now they'd all have to function around Eiffel's tower. Then citizens who lived near the construction site began filing a lawsuit against Eiffel. The proposed tower was monstrous. What if it cast equally monstrous shadows? What if it toppled in the wind? Being the tallest and most ambitious tower ever constructed, how could one man ensure its stability? Eiffel and his engineers assured the public they were confident in the stability of their tower. Being a lattice design, wind would meet very little resistance from the iron body and travel right through the trusses. All variables were accounted for. But just as Eiffel broke ground on his Eiffel Tower, a piece was published in Paris's most prominent newspaper. It was dedicated to the exhibition's commissioner and titled Protest Against the Tower of Monsieur Eiffel. The piece read, We come, we writers, painters, sculptors, architects, lovers of the beauty of Paris, which was, until now, intact, to protest with all our strength and all our indignation in the name of the underestimated taste of the French, in the name of French art and history under threat, against the erection in the very heart of our capital, of the useless and monstrous Eiffel Tower. Is the city of Paris any longer to associate itself with the Baroque and mercantile fancies of a builder of machines, thereby making itself irreparably ugly and bringing dishonor? To comprehend what we are arguing, one only needs to imagine for a moment a tower of ridiculous height dominating Paris like a gigantic black factory chimney its barbarous mass overwhelming our monuments and belittling our works of architecture, which will just disappear before this stupefying folly. And for 20 years, we shall see spreading across the whole city, a city shimmering with the genius of so many centuries, we shall see spreading like an ink stain the odious shadow of this odious column of bolted metal. The scathing piece was backed by a committee of 300 luminaries across the city of Paris, including authors, artists, poets, and architects. And a formal petition was signed by 48 of them, including composer Charles Gounod, writer Guy de Maupassant, painter William Adolphe Bouguereau, and poet François Coppet. Then... Eiffel learned of the lead architect behind the protest campaign, Charles Garnier. 
the very man alongside whom Eiffel had built the Nice Observatory, the respected architect who had built the beloved Paris Opera House, a colleague. It's said these men saw the proposal of the Eiffel Tower as a humiliation and a mockery, but the humiliation was all Eiffel's. that thought. We'll be right back. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At the heart of Charles Garnier's criticism was a fundamental question. What is art? The old adage that beauty lies in the eye of the beholder was one, it appeared, to which Garnier did not subscribe. For Garnier, one's education and his tools make the artist. As Eiffel's biographer explains, Garnier saw iron as tasteless, vulgar and offensive, and having no place in any artistic endeavor. The classical beauty of Paris was built on a foundation of stone, not scaffolded by industrial lattice. 
This wasn't the first time Garnier balked at modern technology as art, regularly trumpeting the virtues of painting over this newfangled thing called photography, implying the latter but a tool to replace feeling with precision. Composer Charles Gounod insisted the Eiffel Tower was not an artistic monument, that it was more interesting to examine than pleasant to look at. It was a question of art versus industry, architect versus engineer, artist versus artisan, stone versus iron. But Eiffel didn't live by that edict. So he proceeded to craft his retort. Eiffel published an interview in the very same newspaper defending he and his engineer's design. He said, Are we to believe that because one is an engineer, one is not preoccupied with the beauty in one's constructions, or that one does not seek to create elegance as well as solidity and durability? Adding, I would like to know on what they base their judgment, because market, sir, my tower, nobody before it is built can say what it will be. Soon, news of the tower traveled across the pond, and one New York writer added his two cents, writing that the Eiffel Tower was ugly and sure to make everything around it ugly too. But in July of 1887, construction began on the Eiffel Tower, mere steps from the River Seine. 300 workers transported each component to the Champ de Mouse by horse-drawn cart, sometimes from kilometers away. Each rivet hole was manufactured with an error margin of less than a tenth of a millimeter. If one piece wasn't cut precisely to size, Eiffel sent it back. Eiffel and his engineers designed the tower's base so that its four legs pointed precisely in the four cardinal directions. The south and east legs sat on solid ground. The north and west legs, however, would stand closest to the Seine, requiring deeper rooting and careful geological consideration. Like the weight of books in a library, Eiffel had to take into account the weight of the visitors in his tower so all four legs would be anchored by giant limestone boulders. Within five months, the foundation was complete. Eiffel's worksite chock full of scaffolds, workers, and movable cranes. By the one-year mark, the first level was finished, complete with a panoramic promenade, restaurants, brasseries, and even a 250-seat cabaret. 17 months in, the second level was done. But Eiffel knew if this tower was going to be enjoyed primarily by expo-goers, it needed one more feature. It needed an elevator to the summit. An elevator in a curved structure proved to be difficult as straight tracks couldn't be built all the way up. So Eiffel proposed an elevator to the second floor. Then, between the second and third floors, passengers would have to get out and switch to another elevator that would take them to the top. 
this design drew its own brand of criticism. But soon, the summit was constructed, complete with laboratories for the study of meteorology, astronomy, physics, and biology, and a small office-slash-apartment for one Gustave Eiffel. And by March 1889, 26 months after they first broke ground, two months before the exposition would open its doors, the Eiffel Tower was complete. To commemorate the two-year journey, Eiffel fixed a plaque onto the tower, listing the names of 199 of its permanent workers, in honor of their labor. He also painted the names of 72 prominent French scientists over the previous century he believed paved the way for his tower. But the prominent French names of 1889 still had misgivings. Writer Léon Blois called the tower a truly tragic street lamp. One French novelist called it a half-built factory pipe. Another referred to the tower as metal asparagus, a hideous column with railings and glorified chicken wire. Writer Guy de Maupassant, a staunch objector of the tower from day one, called it a giant, ungainly skeleton upon a base that looks built to carry a colossal monument to Cyclops, but which just peters out into a ridiculous thin shape like a factory chimney. On May 15, 1889, the Eiffel Tower was officially opened to the public, and Paris's Exposition Universelle kicked off. Millions of people traveled to the capital city from countries across the globe. And of those millions, 1.9 million queued up for the Eiffel Tower. It appeared the tower drew not only hordes of exhibitioners, but the French public, the French press, and the most esteemed political figures of the world, including the President of France, the Queen of Madagascar, the King of Siam, and the Mayor of London. Thomas Edison visited the tower, and when he heard rumblings that the tower was the work of a, quote, simple bridge builder, he replied, No, it's a great idea. The glory of Eiffel is in the magnitude of the conception and the nerve of its execution. And within just one year, Gustave Eiffel earned back his entire investment in the tower, and then some. Many of the 300 names behind the protest against the tower of Monsieur Eiffel began rethinking their objections, including Charles Gounod, who joined Edison and Eiffel for a meal on the second-floor restaurant, while others counted down the days until its scheduled demolish in 1909. But over the next 20 years, the, quote, useless and monstrous Eiffel Tower developed 
a few interesting uses. A decade after its construction, the tower became essentially one giant radio antenna for wireless broadcasting. In fact, come the First World War, the tower's radio telegraphic station was used as a signal jammer against enemy radio communications. The tower also became an important hub for research in the fields of meteorology and astronomy. So, the French government decided not to tear it down after all. During World War II, Hitler actually ordered the destruction of the Eiffel Tower, but his general refused, having too much appreciation for the city's history and culture. In spite of it all, the tower remained, symbolizing the strength of a nation, acting as not only a fixture in the Paris skyline, but an indelible emblem of France as a whole. Gustave Eiffel passed away in 1923 while listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony at his mansion in Paris. He was 91 years old. His creation would remain the tallest man-made structure in the world for 40 years, until it was dethroned by the Chrysler Building in 1928. In 1964, the Eiffel Tower was officially declared a historical monument, and in 1991, it was declared a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. Since its construction in 1889, over 50 towers across the globe have been built in its likeness, and over 300 million people have ridden its elevators. Including one Guy de Maupassant. The Parisian writer continued to disparage the tower in his works, though never calling it by name. But, on a typical Tuesday before his death in 1893, de Maupassant could often be found sipping a glass of Bordeaux at one of the Eiffel Tower's many brasserie. Not because he came around to the tower's ingenuity, but he said because it was the only restaurant in Paris that didn't have a view of the Eiffel Tower. And Monsieur Eiffel. In spite of being told the tower that bore his name was ugly, Useless, monstrous, a gigantic black factory chimney, a barbarous mass, incomplete, confused, deformed, an unwieldy eyesore, an odious column of bolted metal, metal asparagus, a truly tragic street lamp, a half-built factory pipe, a giant ungainly skeleton, and an ink stain on the city of Paris created one of the most enduring, recognized, and beloved monuments in the entire world. Gustave Eiffel, the Magician of Iron. There are so many obstacles on the path to a great project or a great career. But one of the most lethal is doubt. 
Doubt can take you out at the knees. It can instill so much fear that you might even stop trying. Doubt can especially overwhelm you when the gatekeepers dismiss your idea. After all, they hold the keys. They are the ones who have climbed the ladder based on their taste. This is one of life's grinding truths. A big, new, fresh idea terrifies people. It doesn't look like anything that has come before it. Think about the doubt Gustav Eiffel must have faced in his heart of hearts. Here he was, granted the opportunity to build a monument in the center of Paris for a world's fair. And the minute he reveals his plan, the luminaries of Paris dismiss it outright. And they weren't just critics. This group was comprised of the foremost tastemakers in Paris. Its sculptors, its architects, its authors, poets, and painters. Tastemakers the world looked to for art. And this wasn't a small group. It was 300 of the city's leading voices. They called Eiffel's plan metal asparagus and glorified chicken wire. They shouted that it was tasteless, vulgar, and offensive. They didn't see iron as art. But Gustav Eiffel didn't let doubt peck away at his vision. Instead, he did something truly remarkable. He doubted conventional wisdom. The magician of iron knew that a soaring iron structure could be an artistic statement. Not only did Gustav Eiffel ignore the doubt of his naysayers, he wanted to build the tallest structure in the world. As Thomas Edison said, an inventor who had his fair share of doubters, he marveled not only at the sheer magnitude of the tower, but at Eiffel's nerve of the very execution. And that was the key. In spite of all the rejection he faced, Eiffel never waffled in his grand ambition. As a matter of fact, he not only forged ahead, he didn't change a single thing in his design. So often in life when you dare to be different, you risk failure, disappointment, and humiliation. Because nothing attracts rejection quicker than a big, fresh idea. The sign of a remarkable idea is an idea that endures. Gustav Eiffel built a world-class structure that has lasted over 130 years. It is romantic, it is breathtaking, and it just happens to be the most visited paid monument in the world. In spite of all the cultural tastemakers dismissing it, the Eiffel Tower has come to define Parisian culture, appearing in art, in photography, and in countless motion pictures. Never, ever give up. The Eiffel Tower. Weight, 10,100 tons. Height, 1,083 feet. Number of rivets, 2.5 million. Number of visitors per year, 7 million. Number of luminaries that doubted it, 300.
The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. We don't regret to inform you. Our researcher is Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Our theme music is by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Tunes provided by APM Music. The major source for this episode is Eiffel, The Genius Who Reinvented Himself by David I. Harvey. Other major sources are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting James Dyson. The Dyson Vacuum is the best-selling vacuum cleaner in the United Kingdom, making its inventor James Dyson a billionaire. But back when he first designed his revolutionary cyclone technology, Dyson was rejected by every single vacuum company and every single investor. You can follow our network on social at apostrophe pod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes. Ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to CanadaCanDoIt.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. See you next time.